0: Today's program is brought to you by Neal's Yard Dairy, selecting, maturing, and selling farmhouse cheese from the U.K. and Ireland. For more information, visit nealsyarddairy.uk.co.
1: I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd, broadcasting live on the Heritage Radio Network. This is Greg Blaze, and today I'm really happy to have Kalila Jaffe on the line. How are you, Kalila?
1: Great. Thanks so much for having me.
2: My pleasure. Originally, Kalila was going to join me here in the studio, but I hear you're stranded out on the West Coast because of this recent blizzard.
1: I am. I was on transit back from Hawaii, and I've ended up in L.A. for a few days, so unexpected
2: bonus yeah i was gonna say that's that's not bad i mean you could be like somewhere horrible which would be bad Yeah,
1: no LA's great it's sunny and 70 degrees i can't complain yeah
2: man i can <laughs> <laughs> i was just out in san fran um, for the fancy food show Um a little different than la obviously but i ate a ton of great food um, i hope you're eating well while you're out there
1: definitely definitely
2: Awesome. So here in Cutting the curd, we usually have cheesemongers and cheesemakers, other cheese-associated professionals and, uh, and people on to talk cheese with us. But today, um, you know, I'm really I'm really happy to have a non-cheese business person to give us an anthropology and archaeology lesson about cheese and how our favorite ruminant animals became domesticated. So uh, Kalila is a food academic extraordinaire. She's a doctoral candidate in the food studies program at NYU, where she's also the food program coordinator. Uh, her research includes past food ways, domestication, and zoo archaeology, and she's conducted f- field research in uh, Fiji, New Zealand, and Hawaii, um, I'm supposing that's what you were were doing in Hawaii when you were out um, there, or were you just vacation?
1: Visiting visiting the museum and colleagues. Pretty so. awesome. <laughs> it's uh, not a bad place to work.
2: No man, anytime you get a gig in Hawaii, you're 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 doing well, you know. Yeah. So before limited
1: cheese scene actually. What's that? Very limited cheese scene in Hawaii. Oh totally. Um, everything everything shipped in. You know, there's very very little limited local production. So.
2: Yeah, I used to sell some cheese out there to the to the Whole Foods when I worked in California. And, uh, and I mean, I always had a dream because I'm from such like a cold place. I was like, I'm going to open up a cheese shop in Hawaii and I can wear like, next to no clothing and sell cheese. But it probably cost me like three times as much to get everything out there. Know. Probably, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, before we talk about cheese, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about your uh, research interests, because I think when folks think of food, or more specifically when they think about cheese, like archaeology is one of the last things that come to mind, which is a shame. Um, but what's digging up old things have to do with food?
1: Now, yeah, what, what people are always surprised to find out about um, archaeology is that we spend a whole lot of time talking about diet and food. A lot of what we deal with in terms of the physical evidence that we're actually out there digging up, excavating, is old garbage, old trash. And when we're talking about societies, particularly the older, the further back you go, the large portion of their days were taken up with subsistence activities. A large amount of time was spent each day um, growing, cooking, making food, and so it's not surprising that. Most of what we find in the the leftovers and the middens, and the trash heaps is um, they're all things that are directly related to diet and diet tells us just an absolute huge amount about what people used to do, how people used to live, and the amount of information you can tease out of old food waste is pretty spectacular. Um, food studies is fairly' is fairly new um, within the last you know, ten to fifteen years and a lot of other disciplines and i have colleagues that would talk about going to speak to colleagues who don't have anything to do with food and they were like yeah but you study food like what is that is that like a real thing right and that's that's never existed in archaeology because a lot of what we've always done is directly related to subsistence activities um a really good example of that is you can look at so what i do is called zooarchaeology where I specialize in analyzing the remains of animals, old animal bones, shells, teeth, that kind of stuff. And looking at those animal remains, we can tell things like not only what animals they were eating, but how old those animals are, whether the animals were male or female. That information alone is enough to let you know what the herd structures were like. Sure. And we know what herd patterns look like because if you're looking at, say, a daring economy, you know that you're going to be, expect to see lots of older females and very young males because the males are culled out. The females are kept for dairy production until they're no longer productive, at which point they're culled and eaten. And just by having that information, we now know that we're looking at a you know predominantly pastoralist society and what that means for the um, economics, what that means for the social structure—it all of that information kind of falls into place based on the, the food waste. So, that's kind of food and archaeology in a nutshell.
2: Oh, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's certain like the cliche things that we say, like you are, you know, you know that horrible saying, like you are what you eat. But um, yeah. it, it, it makes a lot of sense to me, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that way uh, or I think about food that way a lot. Um, one of the reasons why I love to work with, with cheese um, is its window into um, – I always look at it <clears> – <throat> A lot of times, it's my job. So I mean, I'm not, you know, pretend that I'm thinking this every second that I that I'm working. But it's a window for me into uh, into the past, or into into culture, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. and uh, by studying the animals, which I'm I'm not as good at <laughs> studying the animals because I'm not a farmer, um, I can learn about the things that you're talking about, you know. And um, yeah, that's pretty cool stuff. I think that's you know, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean. <laughs> when there's no supermarket, uh, you got to spend your time, you know, gathering food to to, to yeah. eat. You know, you gotta you gotta survive. Um, so, what do we know about the history, like, of milking cows? Like, how they went from like wild ox to the wide variety of like milking breeds that we know of today?
1: There's actually a lot of very interesting research coming out right now. A lot of it is genetic, um, but there's archaeological evidence to support all that genetic work about the origins of dairying, and we know that. Cattle or cows were domesticated probably around 10,000 years ago, give or take. They've been around for quite a while. They are extremely different than their wild progenitors, which was called the aurochs, which was a big, nasty, wild oxen thing. Nice. Um, yeah, and they actually didn't die out completely until the Middle Ages, interestingly. There were still a couple floating around in the forest, like the deep forests of Europe. Um, but it has been a... A very long time since an orox has actually walked the earth, which is one of the things that I think is hilarious when people talk about like, oh, you know, wild cows. I had I had a vegetarian once tell me that we should just let all the cows go free.
2: Yeah, that's a great. And
1: idea. I was like, and I was like, but what would happen to them? Just like, oh, they would become wild cows. And I was like, you mean feral cows? Because wild cows don't they're they're not a thing anymore. Um,
2: they probably wouldn't the be too receptive. Have, <laughs> too
1: sorry. yeah. The cows that we have now are very clearly selected for some uh, very specific character traits. They're quite a bit smaller than the wild aurochs was. They were probably selected to be more docile. The wild orcs would have been a uh, big, fairly nasty creature. You can look at some of the behavior of some of the other wild um, bovids out there, like the Cape buffalo, which is one of the deadliest animals in Africa, to kind of understand what you were starting with there, as opposed to Bessie the dairy cow, who will come when she's called. Sure. Um, very, very different creatures. Um, that was probably the first selection criteria is really just something that humans could work with without having to, you know, fear for their lives, because um, they're be pretty, pretty intimidating creatures. And... Well, it's a big animal, they, you know?
2: Like, okay. It's like a large thing, you know? they just sort of like, you know, I, I don't know, man. I I, I don't know. You, you figure they had to go to a place where, you know, they'd allow, like, humans to, like, pull on them and extract their milk out, you know? <laughs> that that takes a while to get there, I imagine.
1: Yeah, to just just convince them to you know even let you approach them right. is uh, is pretty spectacular. And there are certain things that make animals easier to domesticate than other wild behaviors that we can exploit. Um, herd animals are ideal because sure. they can be kind of clumped together. They're happy to live together. Um, it makes them easier to control because you get a hold of one, and the others will kind of stick around. Um, uh, animals that tend to flee when confronted instead of defend are not ideal. Like if you took a whole bunch of deer and you tried to walk up to them, they kind of split up in every direction and run. Versus if you walk up to um, American bison, are a good example, you walk up to an American bison, and what they're going to do is they're just going to clump together even closer.
2: Sure, that makes and
1: sense. And that's their defensive mechanism. So it makes things like living in a barn not too terribly stressful for them because they like to live all clumped together. Yeah, they
2: like to be close, um, close to each other, right? Yes,
1: so definitely something that it, they would have selected for. You know, early domestication uh, may have focused more on, you know, meat, leather, what we would call terminal goods, the things you have Makes to kill sense. animals to get out of them, um, because dairying would have come a little bit later. The thing about dairying, which I'm sure you're aware of, probably many of your listeners, is cows have to be um, convinced to let down their milk. Sure. And they, if they're stressed, if they're angry, they, they will not release milk. So you, we had to get them to a point where they were used to handling, they were okay with people enough to be able to, to actually be milked. Um, the other thing that is interesting about early dairying is that for a long period of time in cattle history, they probably had to have the calf present. Nowadays, a uh, cow is bred. The calf is, you know, kept with the cow for as little as a few days in some practices before it's removed, and then the cow can be milked for anywhere from you know nine months to almost a year. Um, in early dairy production, you would have had to have had the calf right there, and you let the calf eat, and then you kind of push the calf aside, and you reach under and um, hope that she thinks that it's still the calf. Yeah. there's all kinds of tricks that were probably used. There's some good papers out there. Um, about your behaviors that you can kind of mock to people still do cow- that
2: now. Well, they do it more. Yeah. I've heard a bit more, and I was I wanted to, you to get your, you know, to get your timeline on sheep and goat because goat is a uh, is mostly the, where I've heard of, you know, the animals being fooled into giving up their milk by a certain lighting system that like you know that makes them think that they're supposed to that they're supposed to lactate you know at a certain period of time. I mean, because those animals, are they, they lactate in a much different cycle. I mean, you can get cows to give milk but probably a lot, or I'm just speculating, a lot easier to, than sheep or goat off of the cycle, their natural like, cycle of lactation, correct?
1: Yeah. Um, my understanding is that out of, out of the big three, the sheep, the goat, and the cows, that it is really the, uh, the sheep out of those three is the most difficult. Um, the cows are, you know, the most.
2: What um, about water buffalo? Because that's the one I always hear that, yeah. that is, is really, really difficult to get the milk out of. Like they, they're stubborn, obstinate. If, they, if they're not super comfortable, they don't give you anything.
1: Yeah, water buffaloes are the, the divas of the milking world. Um, I've heard stories about water buffaloes in the middle of uh, it being in the middle of milking and have like a tractor or car drive by on the road. And if they get even slightly distracted, they will just.
2: It's like, we're not doing this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I actually just read a very interesting article about uh, one of the few um, buffalo dairy producers here in the United States how he's gotten, he's, he's able to lure his buffalo into a windowless shed. And he takes them in one at a time into this windowless shed because by removing the. Windows. They can't have like a stranger walk by. I mean, they're not
2: going to um, lie to you. That sounds pretty like illegal. It sounds like pretty shady activity to like lead those. I don't think they're living in the joke. shed.
1: Uh, one thing that is uh, <laughs> also they're they're known for is the the buffalo make all the decisions in these milking situations. Right. The farmer gets to kind of coax whatever they can out of them. Um, generally, they have to be milked by somebody they know. You can't have like. A random new hire go and milk a water buffalo they'll only be milked by the same person every day um they really are that particular about the situation and they're also um they're not huge producers the uh, kind of a, a regular dairy cow in the u.s most of our dairy breeds can produce up to 50 pounds of milk a day and you're lucky if you get 15 pounds out of a yeah uh, water buffalo.
0: Out there, we
2: we did really. an episode last fall about all about like water buffalo cheese. I learned a ton, uh, or it just it was really interesting, um, interesting to me to just the whole the whole history of the or of the water buffalo. I found I found pretty awesome, you know, or just I, the the thought of it. I had some people asking me uh, a lot at the the cheese counter um, where like how water buffalo got into into Italy. Um, and uh, I had my own insights, and I was wondering if maybe you could tell me if I were right or wrong. Like, I oh. thought, what I thought is that they were brought down, or what I've been told is they have been brought down by, like, the Goths, like, the Visigoths, and then the Visigoths had, like, sort of gotten them from the Khans, like, who had brought them over, like, when they, like, sort of came and rampaged through Eastern Europe. Am I just out of my mind there, or is that, some, is that somewhat correct?
1: That's the general path that they would have had to have taken. They were originally domestic. They There's actually. Uh, two distinct groups of water buffaloes. They call them the swamp buffaloes, which is what you see more in eastern Asia, and then out of the Indus Valley about 4,000 years ago, what they call the river buffalo, which is the type of buffalo that's ended up in Italy. Right. Um, they can interbreed. It's actually fairly rare. They have a different number of chromosomes between those two, those two groups. Um, and they would have had to have come up you know, out of India, and the Indus valley area into central asia out through the middle east and kind of distribute through there. So it is those great you know migrations and movements of people um up and out of that area and then finally down into the italian peninsula.
2: That makes uh, sense. I reading. mean it just makes sense to me. I mean I, I was I listened to her a lot about just or and just a little off topic but it's just about the the path of the cons coming through um you know and how what they did to to Eastern Europe, and uh, <clears throat> and I just had done a tiny bit of research there, um, so I'm glad that I'm glad that the information that I gave out wasn't completely false. <laughs>
1: yeah, and most and well, most of the most of the buffalo that would have been coming through were also they were animals that are primarily used for traction. Dairy right. on Water buffaloes is kind of a secondary product. Um, traction or pulling carts, pulling plows yeah. is their main purpose. They're such a large animal, um, which is funny because they do have this. Reputation for being such divas, and that they'll only do when they want to do, and you can't even get them to walk across the yard unless they want to walk across the yard. But at the same time, they have successfully been taught to, uh, you know, pull a plow. They're very important in maintaining rice paddies in Europe um, because they do enjoy the water so much, and are a large beast of burden. So there would have had been there has to be some flexibility there with them. Sure. In order to get them to do double duty.
2: So you said the goats are pretty easy. They give it up. But I just wondered, so why are the sheep so hard to give the milk? I mean, and cheesemakers may know, but what's your take on that? Why don't don't they want to give it up?
1: Uh, The same general reasons. Their breeding season is shorter, um, which is one reason that will actually reduce their productivity, is that lambs, because they're smaller animals, lambs simply grow up quicker, which means that the sheep won't produce for as long. And the amount of... um, milk that they produce at once is a smaller amount. They are, um, you can almost uh, liken it to grazing behavior where little lambs will come up and they'll have a little bit to eat and then they go off and do something else, and nibble, and then they'll come back and have a little bit to eat, um, which also makes, you know, a a twice-a-day milking routine more difficult um, versus um, cows, which of course we've bred to They carry these huge udders. They'll produce
2: lots and lots of milk,
1: (laughs) pounds of milk, you know, like in a few minutes. And it's um, something that's been very selective there. Uh, Sheep milk is probably, sheep and goat milk is probably some of the first milk in the kind of Neolithic package that people were using, but it was probably in pretty small quantities. Originally, they thought that when these animals. Um, both sheep and goats were domesticated in the Middle East. There's actually right. probably a couple of different areas that cows were domesticated. We've got the Zebu cattle coming out of the Indus Valley, um, as well as you know, a Middle Eastern strain. And that's the beginning of the Neolithic, where we have you know the origins of agriculture and food production for the very first time. And these animals spread very quickly um, through most of the Old World. And it was originally thought that animal husbandry spread. The sheep, the goats, the cows moved all over the place, but it was, again, um, traction where the cows were pulling um, plows or pulling wagons, things along those lines, and also meat and leather and wool. It now seems that the dairying was actually part of this original first expansion. There's been some very interesting evidence, not only in terms of genetics, but they're pulling ceramics out of various places in Europe, various places in the Middle East, where they're doing chemical residue analysis of the insides of these pots. And what they're discovering, discovering through that residue analysis, is that it's, it contains milk proteins. I
2: mean, they're making and cheese in there, man. They're making yogurt and cheese in those pots, right? Doesn't mean they're this-
1: making yogurt and cheese in those pots because fresh milk. Particularly in a hot climate, isn't going to be good for more than an hour. Nope. It turns over very, very quickly. So, in order to make that an edible product that can be kept or uh, used for anything else, particularly if you're trying to store a little bit of surplus food for when things you know aren't going so great, you're going to be having to turn those into workable products pretty quickly.
2: Yep. And interestingly enough, I actually want you to talk about that with us. That's specifically what you're talking about. But first, we're going to take a tiny break, and uh, we're going to come back in just a second and expand on that. Thanks a lot.
0: Today's program is brought to you by Neal's Yard Dairy. Neal's Yard Dairy selects, matures, and sells farmhouse cheese from the UK and Ireland. They work with about 40 cheesemakers. They visit them regularly to taste their cheese and select the batches they want to mature and sell. Amongst the cheeses they select, there's a great deal of variability. Cheese can change hugely depending on how it's treated. They have a range of temperature and humidity controlled maturation facilities at their warehouse in London, run by a team who are dedicated to ensuring they sell their cheese at its best. As the cheese is maturing, they continue to taste through the stock to ensure they're aware of how it is developing over time. When the cheese is ready, their attention turns to directing the right cheese into the hands of the right customer. They have three cheese shops in London, an online shop, and they're a regular site at markets around the country and have a UK and international wholesale trade. For more information, visit co.
2: So welcome back to Cutting the Curd. On today's episode, we're talking with food studies doctoral candidate, anthropologist, and general smarty pants, Kalila Jaffe. Uh, we were just chatting about animal domestication, and that led us into this interesting spot where um, – archaeology and archaeologists have discovered these pots, these ceramic pots that contain milk proteins, and uh, that leads me into an interesting question about a legend that um, I've spread and that I think a bunch of people have had fed to them. Um, you know, So we're going to turn our attention directly to cheese again for a minute and, uh, and talk. So, Khalila, I think like most of us who work in the cheese biz have heard this story about this Arabian merchant who put milk in a pouch made from sheep's stomach and like traveled through the desert on a hot day and then accidentally discovered cheese or yogurt uh, thousands of years ago through this process of the the stomach acids in the sheep skin um, you know coagulating the milk and turning it into yogurt so I was wondering if you had heard that story before
1: I have heard that story um, that specific told just like that um, from some of my cheese bonker friends actually um, but it's probably not far off um, oh, the that's first cool yogurt the first yogurt products were almost certainly – and it's one of these things where in archaeology, you almost never find the first instance or something. Right. Um, out of everything that happens with the human past, we get a very small fraction of a percent actually leaves physical records behind for us to analyze. But with these early ceramics that we do have, we know that they had these milk proteins in them. We know that you know, milk will go sour or go bad very quickly in hot climates. So it's very likely that they would put some milk into a container of some sort, um, come back to it a couple of hours later, discover that it has gotten sour and kind of chunky. Um, That yogurt, as soon as you have one that tastes good, when you get your next batch of milk, you take a spoonful of that and add it into it, which allows you to control the types of bacteria and the strains that you're using, which will help control the flavor of the product, um, is probably exactly how it happened. In terms of you know the first use of rennet and the first use of cheese, you know using that um, ruminant stomach that would have a little bit of that in there as a container, we do know that you know, those types of containers would probably have been pretty common. Um, is a very likely story for how how cheese came into being.
2: I like it. I like that. So I want to ask you, like, and this is weird, like, but. They you know, like, but it's a, it's a good question. Um, so, why should like you know why should we care so much about the origins of cheese and the origins of domesticating ruminant animals? In terms of, do you think that this can help us out? Like, knowing this history can help us out today with our current issues in cheese.
1: I think that there's definitely a lot of interest in the you know the current cheese world in recapturing lost arts and. The way things used to be particularly um, in kind of the pre-industrial period and uh, emphasis on craftsmanship. So I think that there is a a lot of interest um, in terms of helping with um, you know environmental problems or kind of larger society problems. I don't know if there's necessarily an answer there that what? but I definitely think that it, it tells the story of not only just the past of this product of cheese of cows but it also tells the human story. And I think that it's very important for, you know, us as a society or us as you know the human race to understand how we developed and where we came from and that you know contribution to the greater human knowledge.
2: Yeah, I always liked I I love I love cheese, obviously, but one of the reasons why I love it so much is because it um it contains all of this for me contains a lot of locked in memory you know so i sort of reel in old experiences through eating um you know through eating the cheese or handling it through the sensory things that you know that happened that happened to me in uh, you know in my life you know what i mean so i like, mm-hmm. and and uh i feel that there's a great portion of our of our society that's like disconnected that might be disconnected from that from those baser um, <clears throat> sort of senses and emotions, you know. So I, yeah, I really like to be able to to look backwards like that through the cheese, you know. And I think that well, cheese and, is interesting in that way, how it contains specific moments in time in the past inside of it in a certain way.
1: Cheese and yogurt help us tell cheese and yogurt and other you know soured milk products help us tell a much more complete story than if we were to be looking at just fresh dairy. Um, There are many cultures where fresh dairy is not really consumed, and part of it has to do with the fact that refrigeration and some of these other techniques have come to them much later, and there was just never a cultural development there, but dairy products um, that can be stored, can be um, held, have become very important, and I'm thinking particularly of Central Asia and the Mongolian Empire, where... Fresh dairy, you know, it was consumed if you milked and you know stood there and had a drink. But other than that, you know, carrying yogurts and cheeses across the plains was a very important part of the um, very important part of the diet. And there, there is archaeological evidence to back up some of the you know the kind of the chemical analysis and residue analysis that pertains specifically to cheese making as opposed to um, yogurt or fresh dairy, which is a series of what we think are probably strainers. That have been recovered from archaeological sites, which are um, largely ceramic but with perforated bottoms.
2: Where are those coming from? And
1: there are some that have come out of the the, kind of the area around Turkey, the
2: Middle East. That makes sense.
1: And they were a real um, curiosity when they were first excavated. People are like, what are these things? Like, what are they using them for? And once again, they went to do some chemical residue analysis. And sure enough, they're coming up with dairy proteins, milk proteins. That's
0: pretty awesome. And
1: man. <laughs> that's actually the first direct evidence for not only the use of dairy, but the fact that they're straining it, which, to those of us who know anything about cheese production, says you need cheese to do production. That. Yeah, and they've also um, found some with later dates coming out of places as far away as, as Ireland. And uh, oh wow throughout europe that as soon as they had cows they moved into cheese making right away that that cheese making probably came with those first cows that were
2: brought into the area i always look at my cheese timeline like that and when i when i look at the history that i know it always goes from like you know um like middle middle east and like cyprus from cyprus to greece and then greece to rome and then rome to every everywhere else um i don't know why but i think or that's how I that's how I see it in my mind, you know, because because of the way societies conquered one another, or the way the way people, like you said, the the large migrations of people, you know, or that's how I see it. Maybe, am, I, am I off there? Am I, am I pretty far off there? Or
1: cheese making in actually most of these regions probably predates the Roman Empire. Um, we're talking about the you know early Neolithic package moving through. Um, which would have been earlier, so when the Romans moved in, there would have already been
2: that would have been um, established sheep
1: and goats and pigs and, and and all the things that go with those, including cheese making. So it would have happened on a smaller scale. We're talking about um, you know small villages, homesteads, things like that. Um, so so like pe- they were they were already uh, one of my areas of research is in um, Iron Age Ireland, and by the Iron Age in Ireland. Um, they were um, had a predominantly dairying economy that their economy really relied uh, mostly on dairy production
2: where did it all come from? I mean, were these just all windfall like discoveries like where so i know it 's like you said it 's hard to find the flashpoint like the first but um where where did it all come from? Is it just an inherent knowledge of how to use the milk by the people who who have the animals like-
1: it probably it probably came with the animals when they when they got the animals. So it was, would have been discovered right along with um, domestication, that they're domesticating the animals. Those first people to have the animals figured out like, oh, we can make this tasty stuff out of milk if we go through this process. Their neighbors see what they're doing and they're like, huh, maybe if I you know get one of those cows I can do that same thing. Sure. And then their neighbors see it and their neighbors see it and their neighbors see it. So it was just kind of spread in a very organic way. Um, until it you know reaches the the far corners, and the the evidence is now suggesting that when they saw their neighbors with their first cows, those neighbors were probably already enjoying dairy products.
2: So you're saying that so domestication of cows ten thousand years. So so cheese uh, cheese is over ten thousand years old. Is that what you're telling me? That's-
1: that's, that's what the that's what the evidence is suggesting. Yeah. I like
2: that. I like that. That's uh yeah. that's a long been around history. That's a really long time. Yeah, that's I that's great. I I love that. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> so and I love
1: I just absolutely love the the idea of the first person to decide to milk a cow and eat cheese. Um I mean we have That is a good person with right it there because we are we are mammals ourselves and we are, you know, feeding our own children. Right. But the idea that you are look at the cow and you're like, hmm there's this like white excretion coming, whitish yellow excretion coming out of that animal. And then I'm gonna let it sit here and get kind of nasty and funky right. until it gets chunks in it, and then I'm gonna eat that.
2: Yeah. Sounds and great just to the me. The
1: first person to make that jump is just my my personal hero.
2: They must have been very thirsty or very hungry. Do you know what I mean? Like they they're like they, you know, what I, you know what I'm saying? Because the way you just describe that is just like, huh, weird goo. Um, yeah. Let's rot it and eat it. Yum! That sounds great. Yeah. I mean, to me, it yeah. sounds fantastic. That's how I make and my living. Thank God
1: they did. That's exactly my uh, yeah my take on
2: it. So, you know what? I mean, if if your listeners are interested in learning more about this topic, you know, I know that uh, Paul Kinstead goes into a lot about the origin of cheese in his book called Cheese and Culture. Uh, but um, for our listeners, you think there are there any other uh, resources you know of that like, you know, that regular folk can look into? Yeah,
1: unfortunately most of the stuff that I deal with is in pretty dry academic journals. Um, There is a really great project that I do suggest people checking if people are interested in archaeology and particularly that residue analysis. They have a great acronym, it's Leche, which is out of a lab in France, and they do have a website, um, which I believe is leche.org.
2: That's easy to remember.
1: Yeah, it's a really fantastic project, and they're a consortium of researchers who are all pulling data from different areas to kind of tell the story of milk. That's
2: so. all right. Well, we got to check that out. So, well, I want to say to everybody, you know, thanks for listening uh, to our show this week. And thank you so much, Khalila, for coming on. Like, I learned super, super amounts of, of useful information from you this week. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. I hope you get home soon. You know, thanks um, so much for having <laughs> you me. You bet. Stay tuned next week. We'll be chatting with the Skinner sisters who co founded Culture Magazine. Have a great week, everyone. Take care.